Let's pray together. We come before you, Father, totally dependent on your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds to not only the meaning of your text before us, but how it applies to our lives, both individually and corporately as a church. And so may you soften, first of all, our hearts, soften our hard hearts, give us humility as we approach your text, that we don't come beside it or above it, we come underneath it. We say, Lord God, speak to us. May we hear your voice in Jesus, in your word. We pray, Father, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were able, I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word as we are looking at, this morning our text is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year. Also, until I dig around it and put on manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are taking these few weeks up until Easter and basically doing a quick survey, a panoramic view, so to speak, through Luke's gospel at a series I'm calling Encountering Jesus. If you remember the kind of thesis or whatever was that, we need to do this and kind of take these snapshots of Jesus because the default mode, remember it was John Calvin who said that our hearts are idol-making factories? So if you think about that, draw out some of the implications. One of the idols we have is we will create a God after our own fashioning. We'll fashion him to be just like we want him to be. So we may want him to be a God of love, and therefore he's kind of this benevolent grandfather who lets us do whatever we want. That's my God. Or maybe we're tough, hard-nosed, no-nonsense people. So God's a judge, and I love that, and he's holy, and yeah, he looks like this. This is his face all the time. And maybe that's kind of our picture. The point I'm trying to make, and see, I want you paying attention. That's why I do some of these things, is our tendency. Here's what I want you looking into your heart to see. Our tendency, and we're all in the same boat, is we will fashion God the way we want him to be. Rather than the God of the Bible, who is a complex God, a multidimensional God, who is at the same time complete love that Paul wrote in Ephesians surpasses knowledge. So before you limit God to warm, fuzzy and stuff, try height, width, breadth, and length, and that you may know the love of Christ that, by the way, even goes beyond what you can know or comprehend, surpasses knowledge, but he's love and he's truth. He's grace and he's holiness. He's judge and king, 
all at the same time without ever compromising any of his attributes. So thus, we have a continual need to have our view of God reformed and changed continually so that we are obeying, honoring, worshiping, and submitting to not a God of our making, but the God of the Bible. Thus, we've titled the series, Encountering Jesus. This morning, we're looking at something that is rather difficult, encountering Jesus, in a sense, as judge. And he's speaking to us about the necessity of repentance. And and he's doing so through one of his most common ways, which is telling stories, parables. Now, think about it. We all love a good story, do we not? Stories are inherently interesting. They inform, they entertain, but most importantly, what they do is they involve us personally. In a story, the author kind of abducts us and brings us into a narrative world of his creating, a reality that he shapes. And if you think about the Bible, what does the Bible claim about itself? It is the true story of the whole world. When I use the word story, don't just think fiction. The Bible is an absolute true story in its whole and in its details. And it is the true story of the whole world. And thus it makes a claim on us. Our lives are to be governed and directed and shaped by the gospel story, the story of the Bible. Now, parables are some of Jesus' most famous expressions, forms, kind of stories. There is sayings. Think about this. You'll know immediately what we're talking about. If I say there is a man who had two sons, prodigal son, or a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers, good Samaritan. Or a man was sowing some seed. See, even if you know nothing about Jesus, the Bible, the kingdom, you've probably heard of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. These are some of the most influential words in the world. But parables are much more than stories. So what exactly is a parable? And why are they so important? And why are they so often so easily misunderstood? According to New Testament scholars, in the broadest sense, parables are extended analogies. They've sometimes been likened to an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but this is truthfully not doing parables their due or justice. There may be some truth in it, but its parables are much more than that. As extended analogies, there are comparisons used to explain and to convince. See, we all understand the nature of an analogy. If I said God receives and forgives and welcomes sinners, the analogies, in the way you fathers receive and welcome and forgive your wayward children. Parables are used by Jesus to explain and convince people about the kingdom of God, the character of God, what he expects of us. As one commentator put it, parables were the means Jesus used most frequently to explain the kingdom of God, to show his character and the expectations he has for humans. The ultimate aim of a parable is to awaken insight, stimulate the conscience, and move to action. In other words, the primary purpose of a parable is to elicit a response. And if you sit there and casually listen to the parable and don't respond, you are responding. Not response is a response. It's a response of, no, I won't listen to the parable's intended call. 
So don't think you could sit neutrally by on the fence and go, hmm, that was a good parable I heard today. Maybe I'll discuss this at lunch. That's not the point of a parable. The point of a parable is say, get up and get busy. It is moving you to action. And the action in this parable that's intended is it's a call to the necessity of repentance. I mean, one of the things you pick up in Bible reading is when you read repetition, it's almost like pay attention. You ever thought about this? So, for example, when the seraph and the cherubim call out, holy, 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 they want you to pay attention, right? Not one holy, but three. It's kind of like, wake up, pay attention, this is important. Twice, Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. In other words, he's basically going, pay attention, this is important. I'm using these stories, I'm using these illustrations, I'm using these parables, but my aim is to say, maybe you want to consider repentance. It's important stuff. And his call to action comes in three forms, three ways in this text. Jesus gives a realistic warning, a sobering reminder, and a patient plea. A realistic warning, a sobering reminder, and a patient plea. First, a realistic warning. And just think about life for a second. Doesn't it, se- doesn't it seem that whenever disaster hits, okay, we've had a beautiful winter, right? It's a gorgeous day outside, but we know what's coming here in Florida, hurricane season. And I remember all my years living in Oklahoma. You'd hit March, April, May, and all of a sudden, tornado season hits. Whenever a hurricane or tornado, it's always the same questions. Whose fault is it? Why did this happen? Where was God when this happened? Why did God allow this to happen? Now, part of the challenge of listening to the parables of Jesus, part of the purpose behind the parables, part of their aim and their reasoning is to alter our view of reality, to change our thinking, to change our approach to God, ourselves, others, and the world. So Jesus, when asked a question about suffering says, we ought to be asking different questions. So in other words, when you look at the applications here, there's one that's direct, consider repentance, but there's another that still comes out of the text, but it's more derived from implication. It is, does this text call me to change or alter my thinking, alter my reality, alter my approach to God and others in the world? That maybe Jesus is challenging me here to ask different questions. Ask the right questions. How do we learn that from the text? Well, when a disaster hits, like a hurricane or tornado, we have a health crisis, relationship crisis, financial crisis, something hits. Instead of asking who is to blame, whose fault is it, maybe we should be asking questions that have more to do with what is God teaching me? Our eternal destiny, our relationship with God. See, look at the text. Jesus gives us this realistic warning concerning repentance in the context of two disasters. Verse 1, he says there were some present at that very time who told him. So they approached Jesus and said, hey Jesus, there are some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. They obviously come to Jesus for a reason. They want Jesus to respond. I'm sure they want, those were bad Galileans. You got all Galileans and they're terrible. These Galileans, they're worse than everybody. Jesus answers them, so do you think 
These Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, this first disaster was an atrocity carried out by some Roman soldiers acting in the name of their governor, Pilate. A group of Galileans were offering animal sacrifices, presumably at the temple, probably around the Passover when everybody would travel to the temple for their, to make their sacrifices. And in this violent act, the blood of the victims was mixed with the blood of the sacrifice, which would make it completely a sacrilege. And the question posed by those reporting this to Jesus was, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than ordinary Galileans? In other words, in the ancient world, as is often the case today, it's presumed that catastrophe or disaster was due to the sin of the victim. Now let's bring it close to home. Isn't that the way it always is? Something bad happens and we want to know whose fault it is. Something bad happens and we go, we're going to go and encourage the person. Something happens to my brother and sister in Christ and we go, okay, I, I need to love them. I need to encourage them. Let me go to their home and encourage them or I'll, I'll talk to them and stuff. And what immediately comes out of our mouth? Have you tried this solution? Maybe if you changed your diet this way. If you ever thought about doing this, how about giving this a try? Can I tell you very honestly what the message is that you're saying to the person who's standing in the midst of their tragedy? In the midst, what they hear is, it's my fault. If I had only done this differently, if I had only tried this, I would be fixed. They're not hearing love and encouragement. They're hearing, yeah, I'm just a mess. This confirms what a mess I am. And that's the encouragement. Jesus is directly changing that approach. That's not Jesus' view for the Christian community. See, we need to recognize a couple of things here. First of all, obviously it is true, sometimes what happens to us is from the consequences of our own sinful actions. Absolutely. But there are many times when it is not. We live in a fallen world. And here's the thing, if we're trying to help somebody... We can't ever presume to know exactly what God is doing in a person's life. God pretty clearly says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. God's ways don't always make sense to the person going through them. You think you could come along somebody and God's ways make perfect sense to you? Maybe a little presumptuous, don't you think? We also have to recognize there are many times when evil is done and it's not punished yet. Not that it's not going to be punished, but not yet. We need to remember that divine justice has not been meted out yet. The day of judgment has not yet come. Jesus Christ has not returned bodily to judge the living and the dead. But just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. See, one of the major lessons of this parable is that judgment delayed is not judgment canceled. But it might be judgment delayed. So Jesus answers their question by saying, wrong question. Wrong focus. They ask, is this tragedy proof that they were worse sinners? And Jesus says, um, excuse me, let's look at you. Unless you repent, you too will also likewise perish. In other words, he's saying there's something much more important for you to be thinking here. Log, I, your I, not speck, their I. 
And he's saying, you need to be thinking about your life, your sin, your destiny, your relationship to God, and make that a priority. You're worried about who's a worse sinner, and Jesus says, I'm all in the same boat. We're all sin, sinners deserving of judgment. And he reinforces it by giving the next example. Verse 4, he says, how about or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Realistic warning. We're all debtors to God. We're all sinners and deserving of judgment and in need of repentance. Which brings us to our second point, the sobering reminder. He gives us now this parable, which comes next in verse 6, to reinforce what he's talking about when he's talking about our need for repentance. Verse 6 begins, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Now notice what's going on there. Cut it down means what? Judgment. Verdict. Guilty. Get rid of it. Throw it in the garbage heap. It's useless to me as the owner of the vineyard. Why should it use up the ground? And he, being the gardener, the vine dresser, answers him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if I should bear fruit next year, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now we need to recognize some of the background here. And this is why I had Vic read the passage he did earlier so that we can fully understand this parable. In the Old Testament, God would often use the figure, the imagery of a vine and a vineyard to refer to his people, Israel. So just to read one of the verses in Isaiah 5, verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. In other words, he looked for fruit, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now let's remember Israel's purpose in the Old Testament. They were called to be faithful. They were called to be what? A light to the nations. They were to be a fruitful tree in God's vineyard. That's why God gave them all the privileges. His word, the covenant, the law, Torah, the prophets, the priests, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, all of this. And so while that's in its original context, a parable to Israel, we should not miss the relevance and application to ourselves. God expects us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit and repentance are not identical things, but we are to bear fruit in keeping with, as an expression, an overflow of repentance. So, for example, we are, if our lives are centered, because what is repentance? Repentance is to turn from yourself and your sin, and to turn, and to re it's a change of direction. It's a change of mind and a change of direction so that your life is centered upon and oriented towards God. And the fruit that it bears, don't miss, is fruit of our character, fruit of our lives, fruit of our words, fruit of our deeds. So ask yourself questions like, am I cultivating virtue in my life? Am I growing in character? Specifically, am I more loving now than I was five years ago? Am I more joyful? Am I more peaceful? Am I more patient? Am I more kind? Am I more faithful? Am I more gentle? And yes, self-control's in there too. 
Ask yourself very specific, because this is the fruit of the Spirit. So if the command is be filled with the Spirit, do you know what fullness of the Spirit's going to look like? It's going to look like a radically different character, a new sort of human being, that instead of impatient is patient, instead of harsh is gentle, instead of unkind is kind, instead of getting impatient, say, I'm done with you, will be long-suffering and suffer with you day after day after day after day, as long as it takes. That's called supernatural fruit, not artificial, can't be faked, and not your natural personality. It comes from the outside. It comes from the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, indwells every believer. So this ought to be, the fruit of the Spirit ought to be the normal way a believer relates. We think, wow, look at that person's joy. This must be revival. And the New Testament says, no, it's normal. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says to the church. So ask yourself question, am I growing in character? Am I growing in helpfulness to other people? Am I growing in service to God? He tells this story to reinforce the necessity of repentance. And friends, please remember Martin Luther's first of the 95 Theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called to the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not simply the King David kind. Bathsheba, Uriah, big deal, I repent. So how often do you repent? Well, hopefully only once in a lifetime. Do you hear what Luther said? The entire life. So in other words, repentance ought to be your normal Christian walk. Repentance is normal on Wednesday morning. Repentance is normal on Thursday evening. Repentance is normal between husband and wife. Repentance is normal before parents and children. See, let me ask you, parents, this question. When was the last time you repented before your child? When was the last time you went to your child? And without blaming, without self-justifying, you just owned something and you just said, I blew it there. Me. I wasn't gentle. I wasn't patient. I need to redirect myself and be filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more thing necessary, isn't there? You don't want me to dismiss you yet, do you? You see the need for repentance. Where in the world are we going to get the power for it? There's one more part, very crucial part of the parable. And it comes in verse 8. And this is a patient plea. In verse 8, he, being the gardener, the vine dresser, answered the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the garden, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. See, do you know what's going on here? Is the gardener does something absolutely amazing. He intercedes for the fig tree. He's praying and pleading before the owner for the fig tree. Like Abraham who interceded for the city of Sodom, if only you would find five righteous people in the city, have mercy on it. The gardener intercedes on behalf of the fig tree. If only you would let me tend it, fertilize it, take special care of it, give it my own personal attention to nourish it, to feed it, to nurture it, to in other words, give it my life. He gives a patient plea. And again, in the original setting and context, this parable 
is about God's patience with Israel. Remember Jesus' words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Of course, we know what happened later in history. In AD 70, God came, judgment came. Judgment delayed is not judgment canceled. He wouldn't wait forever. People were killed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was besieged. Israel was scattered. And again, we need to see we're no better. God will not wait forever. Are you bearing good spiritual fruit? The theologian J.C. Ryle said of this particular parable, and this I found incredibly convicting. He said, we live in a land of Bibles and of liberty and of gospel preaching. Where is the fruit? Where is the evidence? He writes, this parable is peculiarly humbling and heart-searching. We need to recognize judgment has not yet come because God is patiently and mercifully and is still giving us time to repent. But don't presume upon his patience. We need to see the greater gardener, the greater vine dresser, Jesus Christ, loving you more than you will ever love yourself, being more concerned for your soul than you will ever be for your soul. Because what is he doing? He is pleading and interceding with the Father on your behalf. As the hymn says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Do you see, friends, Jesus before the throne of God be above, coming to the heavens, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? And what is he doing? He lives, he's a perfect high priest who is pleading to God on your behalf. That is the one who fights for you. That is the one who is your mediator. That is the one who is your advocate. That is the one who goes to bat for you, who is more concerned for you than you will ever be for you. And repentance doesn't mean get your act together. Repentance means soften your heart and embrace Jesus as your life. As Paul wrote in Romans 14, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Repentance is not, oh, I'm doing bad things. Let me get my act together and be more moral. That's the furthest thing from repentance. Repentance is I see my independence. I see my autonomy. I see my self-righteousness. I see my moralism. I see my counting on myself to prove myself. I have to be right all the time. I have to validate myself. I have to prove myself importance. I will die to myself. I will crucify self in order to have Jesus come into my soul and love me. My life is his. God is merciful. He loves us in Christ. He treasures us. Oh, that we would see we have a great high priest whose name is love, patiently pleading to God. He lives to intercede and plea for us. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be our vine dresser, our gardener. And even as ones who have come in, now he tends our soul. Oh, that we would be nourished by the word of God, fed by the sacraments, 
that our times of prayer would be enriching and life-giving, that we wouldn't simply look for answers, we would look for God himself. So we pray, as Paul prayed, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge for this purpose, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Fill this place with the fullness of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.